This is They Create Worlds, episode 113, Primordial Computer Game Industry. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Welcome to another new month of fun and entertainment. So much entertainment that we're going to bring you that entertainment and tell you about places you can hear us talk some more. You always wanted that, didn't you? <laughs> That's right. We've been a little busy over the past couple of months, uh, mostly because I wrote a book. Everyone probably knows that by now that's listening to this, but we're going to tell you again anyway. They create worlds. The story of the people and companies that shape the video game industry, volume one from CRC Press, available at major online retailers. Because of that, we've uh, branched out a little bit and talked to a few other nice people out there in podcast land. The first one that came out back in March was uh, 42 Cast, a nice, interesting podcast. It's kind of a roundtable type podcast normally. Ours was a little bit different because one of the hosts uh, is a fan of the show and he was interviewing us about what we do on our show and what we do with video game history and all of that. So it wasn't quite their normal format. But it's kind of a roundtable discussion show where a rotating cast of hosts with interests in all sorts of fandom topics talk to a rotating series of guests about literally all sorts of fandom topics. 42, of course, is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And they chose that because their podcast really is about life, the universe, and everything, at least from a fandom perspective. So... Some great guys and gals over there, and uh, we talked just with one of the regular hosts, Nathan Laws, and I had a very nice chat about video game history and our interests in our podcast and my book and all that good stuff. It was great to be on there with Nathan. He was really able to capture a lot of the more back and forth that Alex and I have personally done in our own conversation back and forth. We also managed to capture a little bit more about what our personal backstories are that doesn't normally come up in a podcast, for instance. For instance, my fascination with horror movies. And the fact that DS9 is the best Star Trek. Fight me. Fight me. So if you have any interest in that at all, please go check them out. It is a really, really good episode. The other podcast that we were on was Pixelated Audio. They cover music and video games very much the same way that we cover history as a whole. So all of the composers, the artists, the musicians, they look at all the sound. What's the technology behind making the music of all the games that we know and love? We ended up covering many, many games in rapid succession, spanning about roughly 1977 to 84. So pretty much all the early stuff up to just around the crash. Since part of it was talking about my book and that coming out, and the book covers prehistory up all the way to 1982, we decided to do, together in collaboration with them, all of us, all four of us, decided that we would do kind of a broad overview of music in the time period that my book covers. But because the music doesn't really get all that interesting by 1982, we tacked on a couple of more years so we could get into something a little meatier as well from a music perspective. But we kind of talked about the history, the technology why certain methods, why certain genres of music and why certain methods of musical production were used in these early games due to the limits of technology. 
just a very wide-ranging uh, conversation. It moves pretty quickly because we cover a lot of ground, but they are both very knowledgeable guys in their area. We're knowledgeable guys in our area, so it was just great fun and certainly hope to collaborate with them in the future some way, somehow, on something, because uh, that, was, that was definitely a treat. I think if you're interested in this podcast and if you're not, why are you still here listening to this? I think you would really enjoy that podcast, too. Not just our episode, but even moving beyond the episode we did and, and exploring some of their other stuff, because they're good and, they're, and they're, they're fun. And again, of course, I will have a link to that episode in the show notes. Putting aside our guest appearances, we, of course, have to entertain everyone now for at least an hour. <laughs> Maybe longer. I'm not sure I can talk for an hour. That seems like an awful long time. It's usually a struggle to get a full episode in, isn't it? It may be a struggle to edit it at times, but I'm not so <laughs> sure about the whole talking for an hour thing. You don't know how many of our two-parters weren't two-parters in the planning phase. In all honesty, <laughs> most of them. Occasionally it's deliberate. Occasionally we really went in knowing it was going to be two. But yeah, a lot of the time it's like, we'll cover this topic. And then when I'm like a quarter of the way through it and I look at the recording timestamp, it's like, oh, no, this is not one episode anymore. Case in point, the previous two parter of platform games was supposed to be one. There's a lot of platformers. And believe me, we skipped most of them to get it cut down to about three hours between two episodes. <laughs> But this one, I think we can get done in one. I'm going to boldly proclaim that, and we'll leave it in even if I'm wrong. But uh, you, the folks at home can guess whether we're going to make it or not. Of course, the title will probably say Part 1 if it's a two-parter, and that'll spoil the game. But still, let's see what we can do. The last one was a two-parter, and I didn't put a one or two in it. That's true, you didn't. We'll see what happens. You can make bets at home, I guess, as you listen. Though this is actually a pretty self-contained topic in all seriousness, because what we want to do, we've kind of looked at the very primordial beginnings of video arcade games. We've looked at the very primordial beginning of home console games. We've looked at the very primordial beginnings of games on computers, stuff being done in the 50s, 60s, and whatnot. But what we haven't looked at is the primordial microcomputer game industry, which was really the first industry in creating games in order to sell them and make money. Because even though you had vibrant game communities in the 1960s and early 1970s that were forming around these timesharing hubs, which is something we did a whole episode on, on timesharing and the games that popped up in timesharing environments, that was all public domain stuff. It was freely available stuff, as long as you had access to a terminal. It wasn't an industry. There was no computer game industry because people did not own computers. They were able to sign up for a little time on a computer. Some of those services cost money to somebody. Some of them were free, but the games themselves that were on these systems weren't being commercially sold. So what we kind of want to do this time is hone in on the very beginnings of microcomputer games as a business. Stuff that was going on at the end of the 70s, 75, 76, 77, 78. Maybe we'll dip our toes slightly into 79, I'm not sure, but we want to keep it to the stuff that people don't think of today. We're not going to talk about your Sierras, your Broderboons, your Sirius Softwares, your Infocoms. 
some of these companies we've already covered in their own episodes, some of them we haven't, but these are companies that resonate even still today because they're companies that persisted through the 80s and into the 90s in some cases, and in very rare cases, even into the 2000s. The period we're talking about are not these companies because the guys that were doing work in this very early period, for the most part, didn't persist into this later time period. It was just a very brief moment in time. And as the episode unfolds, we'll talk a little bit about why that is as well and why it's things like Sierra we know today and not things like soft tape. So to give this a little more context, Mm -hmm. how is this different from how we previously looked at PCs, say the Trinity and Disciples or the timeshared episode? Right. We did do a look at the Trinity. That was a hardware-focused episode. Today, we're not going to be focusing on hardware. Obviously, you can't talk about the games without briefly mentioning some of the platforms they ran on, but this isn't going to be a history of Apple or Mits or Tandy or any of those. So that's where it differentiates itself from that episode. As for the timesharing thing, this is, in a way, part two of that story, because we talked about how some of the very early classic games formed. We talked about your Star Treks, we talked about your Oregon Trails, we talked about your Hammurabis, we talked about some of the games that then did go on to be early microcomputer classics, but we were talking about them in the context of this creative experimental and sharing environment that was growing up primarily in college campuses and even in high schools. We weren't talking about then how this stuff got really commercialized in the 1970s. And so it's kind of a continuation of the timesharing thing. Well, there'll be a little bit of overlap at the beginning, but we're going to get into some stuff that is actually brand new for this podcast. More and more, there's lots of overlapping, but there's still times where we can get to a subject that we've barely scratched the surface of. And uh, wouldn't you know, this is one of them. Oh, I'm sure we'll eventually find them all. (laughs) And 500 episodes from now. Well, at least we still have some more content we can do. (laughs) We'll find out. You can take bets on that, too. You know, you won't be able to collect on that for 10 years, but... (laughs) Well, I'm sure things will evolve and change. So to start off with our look at these early games, since we're looking more at games as opposed to the hardware and software side, who was the first one onto the field or who was the first major player? Right. So this is something that is still very much evolving, because since this is a very forgotten period of history of computer games, it hasn't been looked into in any great depth yet. I've got a chapter of it in my book. Sad to say, that chapter is already obsolete. Really? Obsolete already? That's right. That's right. As much as I've tried to avoid errors and misspeaks and... Everything else, it's already, I mean, no one's perfect. It's already happening. Now, there aren't any errors in this chapter in the sense that the things that I say exist and the times that I say they existed are the times they existed. But when I tried to track down what was absolutely positively first from a commercial perspective and make a definitive claim about that, I was wrong. One of my uh, fellow Gaming Alexandria people hanging out in the Gaming Alexandria Discord, as well as in the Video Game History Foundation Discord, uh, Kate Willert, has been researching some of this stuff more from an aesthetic perspective of packaging and advertising, because she does graphic arts and design. So that's the area that particularly interests her in terms of this video game history. But in the process of looking into design and advertising and questions, She often uncovers other stuff as well, and she found a few things that I had missed, 
It's only so much time that I have to research the entirety of video game history, so sometimes things fall through the cracks. Some of the stuff I'm going to talk about is in my book and is covered in my book. Some of it. Big shout out to uh, Kate Willard for, and we'll link in the show notes where actually she did an article, a blog post, I should say, on some of this stuff where uh, she did a post on box art, best box art. But of course, in this period, it was actually mostly books, so it's book art in this sense. But she did kind of a nice overview of some of this early stuff as well. Yeah, a few different sources for this. So to get back to what you were saying on that, saying who's first is difficult and may continue to evolve. So I don't think it's necessarily useful to use that as a starting point for that reason, but we can kind of say what kind of things were first. So to set the stage for this and to set the context for this a little bit, we need to understand a little bit about what the microcomputer market was circa 1976. We won't spend a lot of time on microcomputer hardware here. We could easily do a whole episode on that. We will probably at some point do a whole episode on that. But just to give the really basic overview, most of the earliest computers that came out were kits. They were do-it-yourself, some assembly required kits. They were made possible by the invention of the microprocessor at Intel. You don't need a microprocessor strictly to do a very primitive microcomputer, but TTL hardware-based systems tended to be more expensive because there were more components, and of course they're more limited because you need more components to do the same amount of stuff that you do with a single chip. So practically speaking, even though there were a couple very early examples of what we would consider microcomputers or personal computers that use TTL hardware instead of a microprocessor, it's really Intel's invention of the microprocessor that spurs this forward. There was kind of a collision of a couple of different forces coming into play here. You had the microprocessor coming in, and in fact, microprocessors back in the day were called microcomputers which I think is really why the term microcomputer got applied to the computer systems as well. Obviously, it's also distinguished them from the mini computers, which were smaller than your full-size mainframes, but still bigger than the emerging micros. But microprocessors were originally called microcomputers because it was like it was a computer on a single chip, even though you still needed lots of other stuff to make it work practically. You had CPU, I.O., basic RAM and ROM caches, and power on a single wafer. You know, that was kind of a microprocessor. One way to look at it is that it is akin to, say, a Raspberry Pi. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it is a lot less advanced and a few generations removed from that. Sure. The earliest of these microcomputers were generally made available in kit form, as I said. But at the same time, you had a do-it-yourself hobbyist electronics community that had really kind of emerged over the course of the last couple of decades after World War II, which was really kind of the period when electronics and electronic devices really began to spread quite widely because electronics were used in the war and then everything was thrown out after and you had surplus and all of that kind of stuff. You had a lot of guys that were interested in building their own electronic kits. Sometimes that would be ham radios or citizen band radios Sometimes that would be televisions. Sometimes it would be little crystal radio sets. Any of these electronic devices they were very interested in. And there was a whole hobbyist community that was formed around this. And there were magazines that catered to them, like Popular Electronics, Radio Electronics, 
etc., they would have kits in them that you could build yourself. Sometimes they would be kits that you would buy. They'd come in a box from some small company somewhere. Other times it would just be, here's a list of parts. Go find them and build it yourself. Here's instructions for how to wire them all together. They were very much getting interested in the computer scene, first of all, really through time-sharing terminals, because we have to remember this was a period of time, going back to our time-sharing stuff, where there was a real belief that computers were going to enter the home, but they weren't going to enter the home in terms of you personally owning a computer, because that was ridiculous. But what you might own would be a dumb terminal, whether that is a teletype that prints out in paper or one of the fancy-schmancy CRT terminals coming out, which would look very similar to uh, what we would consider a computer today, except it would be incapable of independent operation because it would have no processing unit in it itself, hence why we would call it a dumb terminal. And then that would be hooked in via the phone lines to access the big, uh, scary mainframe someplace else and do stuff. So there were starting to be kits for terminals, and there was starting to be more and more awareness of computers and computing, and there was starting to be this demand within the hobbyist communities for computers, because these small microprocessor-driven computers were kind of the latest and greatest electronic toy. You know, the MITS Altair was the first big famous one in 1975, really tail into 1974. It wasn't first. We're not going to go into the little fiddly computers that preceded it. If we ever do a hardware episode on this stuff, we will. Just suffice it to say that, yes, I realize it wasn't the first one, that there were some things in 74 and even 73 that predate it. But it was kind of the beginning of this hobbyist movement. But the key thing to understand about this first wave is that because these were kit computers, the people that were drawn to them were the people that wanted to do everything themselves. They didn't want a home computer to do word processing. These computers, in their very basic form, couldn't even do word processing. They didn't have keyboards. They didn't have monitors. You got a box. The box had switches. The box had lights. You flick the switches on and off, ones and zeros, to enter information in assembly language, which is the language of ones and zeros, and then doing so would make the lights blink. There were expansions to let you do a few more things with them, but they were very limited. So you weren't getting them to do something practical. You were getting them because you wanted to build them, and then you wanted to program them. And that's the key here. At the very beginning, there was not a computer software industry, really, where people were selling you much software. Because if you were buying a computer in 1975, 1976, this time period, you were really buying that computer to do your own thing make your own software, and then you might trade it with your friends. You might go to a local users group, like the famous Homebrew Computer Club in Palo Alto or the uh, Southern California Computer Society. There was one up in the Seattle area, Puget Sound, Computer something or another. You know, these groups started springing up and they would trade software amongst themselves, but Nobody was trying to sell software. People were just kind of there for the challenge of it and the interest of it and the thrill of doing it more than anything else. As these computers started to become more widespread, there started to be aspirations to do more with them, trying to get them into businesses, trying to get them into industrial settings. I think a lot of that was aspirational more than it was successful because these computers were fairly primitive and fairly limited in what they could do. They only had 
the very early 8-bit processors like the uh, Intel 8080. They, generally speaking, had very little memory. You could buy memory expansions, but you were probably only looking at having 2K or 4K of memory in a basic configuration. You could theoretically get that up to something like 16K, but only by spending a lot of money on a lot of daughter boards that you're plugging into the bus. Most people realistically aren't having that. So it wasn't really much of a place to do much of anything commercial, both because of the limitations of the technology and the desires of the people doing this, which were very do-it-yourself kind of people. As there came to be aspirations to spread computing a little farther and wider, to try to get systems that were at least partially pre-assembled to the public. And you have to understand that pre-assembled in this days didn't mean the same thing as if you bought a computer from, say, HP. If you buy a computer from HP, you get a bunch of boards and a power supply that have already been nicely and lovingly inserted in a case. And then that case may have other disk drives and stuff also lovingly assembled and wired into the motherboard. And then it's going to come probably with a nice keyboard and a nice mouse. And if you sprang for the monitor, it will also come with a nice monitor that you just have to plug in very simply in the proper spot. What an assembled computer meant in 1976 was, good news, guys, you don't have to solder the chips onto the board. Yep. Remember all those issues you used to have just <laughs> soldering things in soldering class? Well, you don't have to worry about that now. We pre-soldered everything. You just have to plug everything in right, and for the love of God, don't swap around the polarity on that power cord. Right. You still needed to find your own case and screw it into the case. You still needed to find your own keyboard if you wanted a keyboard. You still had to find your own monitor if you wanted a monitor. A fully assembled computer in 1976 terms is not the same thing as a fully assembled computer even in 1986 terms. That just gives you a sense of where you are. So you had kind of kits, you had fully assembled computers, and then you started at the tail end of 76 into 77 getting fully integrated computers. What we mean by that is, hey, here's a monitor, here's a keyboard, here's a case. They all fit together already. You don't have to source that stuff. You don't have to do it yourself. The Altair was kind of the beginning of the market for the kits. Then by early 1976, you're getting things like the Apple One computer, not the Apple II, the Apple One computer, that are fully assembled in the sense that they have the chips already soldered onto the board. And then at the end of 1976 and into 77, you're starting to get the first fully integrated computers that are both available as kits or pre-integrated fully assembled, things like the Sphere One and the Sol 20 computer. Throwing a lot of names at you, don't worry, we'll do a hardware episode someday. It's more about the progression than it is about the individual computers. And then finally, you get the Trinity, which is really the beginning of more user-friendly, fully assembled, completely integrated computer systems. Now, I use those terms loosely. They are not user-friendly compared to what you would consider user-friendly today. There were even some things that weren't necessarily fully assembled on those, like the Apple II not having an RF modulator inside it because of FCC testing problems. So there's some caveats to what we're saying there when we call them easier and completely integrated. But that's kind of the progression in this time period from kits to fully assembled to mostly integrated to fully integrated with the Trinity. As these bands are expanding outward, 
when we're getting in from the really dedicated hardware hobbyists to computers that you don't have to solder yourself, you start to get a new set of hobbyists that are really just software hobbyists. There are a lot of people out there that love the idea of programming that never, ever, ever, ever want to build a piece of hardware in their life, never want to hold a soldering iron in their life. That's a completely different skill set from programming. Hardware engineering and software engineering are not in any way the same thing. Some people do both, but not everybody wants to do both, right, Jeff? Yeah, just take a moment to think about how buried the information technology field is. There are people who spend their entire lives focused just on database administration. Another subfield would be information assurance or information security. And even there, there's a lot of people who have different focuses. There are people who focus purely on vulnerabilities of software. There's people who focus on the vulnerabilities of hardware. There are people who look at physical security and social engineering, and they're called pen testers. They will physically go out to sites sometimes and just try and figure out, okay, how can I trick the guard to let me in? What do people just leave around that lets me get into some sort of secure area? There are companies out there that spend a lot of money to try and protect themselves from this and hire these professionals to come out and run these penetration tests. The technology field is really wide and varied, and there's a lot more than people give it credit for, including myself. Absolutely. And even back in that day, while things weren't nearly as specialized as all that for obvious reasons, there was a divide between hardware and software people. So as you got into the next wave of computers where you didn't have to solder so many things together just to have a good time, you got more and more people that were interested in software. So you started to get more software made available and more people being interested in acquiring software, not necessarily making their own software and trading it sometimes with other people. A big thing in software development is don't reinvent the wheel. If it's already out there and it works well enough, just reuse it. This is also how Linux works. It builds upon itself with a whole bunch of little utilities and other little programs that are designed to build on top of each other. However, if they're not designed well or integrated well, then it's not going to allow you to have a well-working system. This is often how Dependency Hell comes about. <laughs> kind of the first games that started to appear, there were a few different sources for these. First of all, you know, I told you how the Altair was very limited with its switches and blinking lights. Well, it did have expansion capabilities, as I kind of hinted at a little earlier. You could plug other boards into it. It had a 100-channel bus that you could plug additional circuit boards into in order to give the computer more memory or different functionality. So it wasn't long before there were some graphics boards that were created for the system so that you could actually plug your Altair into your TV set. Nobody really had monitors at this point because the monitor industry basically didn't exist yet. But you could plug into your television. It could generate images just like a computer monitor can today, even color images a lot of the time. The first of these was put out by a company called Chromemco, which was founded by two of these do-it-yourself hobbyists, uh, Roger Mellon and Harry Garland, who contributed a lot to the hobbyist magazines, and they became aware of the Altair very early because they contributed to Popular Electronics, the same magazine that the Altair was first unveiled in and made available for order through. 
So they saw it very early on, and they had been already working with camera technology, trying to interface cameras with computers. So when they saw the Altair, they decided, well, why don't we make a a graphics board for this uh, so you can output to a television? And so they created something called the Dazzler, which was introduced in early 1976. It might not have been quite available until a little later in the year. It's tricky with the hobbyist magazines to track the stuff down because these are all very small companies, and often the term company is used very loosely. It's usually just a guy or two that have a garage or a back room and are just soldering this stuff together for their own edification, and then they get a handful of orders through the hobbyist magazines, and then they mail them out. You know, it's not like a real company. It's just enthusiasts and hobbyists that are a little more industrious than their fellow enthusiasts and hobbyists that are making some money by selling their product, just like today. You know, if you're into cosplaying and, you know, there's somebody that makes chain mail for cosplayers, it's like you're ordering that from a guy who has a website. He doesn't really have a big company. It's just him and maybe his friend, you know, in the back room putting all those rings together for you. It's very much the same kind of idea of this just do it yourself mentality and very Etsy, very Pinterest, just with uh, 1970s era electronics. The point that I'm trying to make with that is they'll tell Popular Electronics that they're working on this thing or that they're close to done with this thing. And Popular Electronics, because they need to sell magazines, will be like, that's wonderful. We're going to promote it in our issue and it'll be great. So they do a spread on it, but the product's not actually ready yet. Or even though they've done a prototype, they're not ready to make lots of them yet because they're not real companies. So just because something debuts in a particular issue of something like Popular Electronics or Radio Electronics or even the early computer magazines like Byte or Creative Computing, it may not have actually been available to purchase. People might not have actually had it in their hands for several months past that that issue date, if that makes sense. The Dazzler was announced in February 76. Certainly people were getting a hold of it by the middle of 76. This was the first time you could plug one of these microcomputers relatively easily into a television to generate graphics. So Kremenko was one of the first companies that was offering individual games for sale. There's a distinction we have to make here because games had been for sale for several years by this point. Because in the time-sharing days, we talked about BASIC. We talked about how BASIC became a standard language across time-sharing systems. We talked about how programs that were written in BASIC at various time-sharing hubs, various corporations, high schools, colleges, were all kind of grouped together into books and then sometimes sold as groups of programs. So you had things like David All's 101 Basic Computer Games, which we talked about in the context of our uh, time-sharing episode. You had the People's Computer Company and their book, from 1974, What to Do After You Hit Return, PCC's first book of computer games. These two books came out in 73 and 74, respectively. Even before that, you had a guy named Donald Spencer, who had written a book all the way back in 1968 that was called Game Playing with Computers. So there were books available with games in them going back to at least the late 1960s. I would distinguish what we're talking about now from that, though, because if you were buying a book with program listings, you were buying something that allowed you to type a program into memory so that you could run it yourself. You're not buying a computer program. You're buying a code listing. When we're talking about the beginning of selling computer games, 
as opposed to selling computer game code. What I think is important and what I think should be the dividing line is, will this program automatically load into your computer, or do you have to put it in your computer? It comes down to, do I have to program the game in myself via this type-in listing, this code, or do I have some sort of other media that I can just hand to the computer and go, okay, computer, load this, let us play this game. Right. Even though there was commercial product in these early books, I wouldn't call that really selling computer games. I would call that selling computer code, even though it is code that happens to make create a game. Chromemco is probably the first company that sold computer games where you didn't have to program them in yourself. In 1976, in conjunction with the Dazzler, they started promoting and creating their own computer programs. These were programs that would showcase, obviously, the graphical capability of the Dazzler. These programs were made available not on disk. Nobody had disks at this time because, man, floppy disks were expensive back then. We talked about this in other episodes. Floppy disks be expensive. Nobody's got those. Very few people have them. They're not even on cassette tape, which in the uh, very beginning of the microcomputer industry was the preferred medium for software just because they were cheaper. And, of course, as we talked about in Britain, they were even the preferred medium long after the very early days. I mean, you were still buying games on cassette in the, in the mid to late 80s on the 8-bit computers there. No, these games were on punched paper tape. Impressive. <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about really, really old school here. Just imagine if your kid or children decided to play around with that paper tape and punch a few holes in it or spill some water on it. Yeah, so, I mean, punch paper tape, it's, it's the same concept as punched cards, except that instead of stacks of index cards, you literally have a long roll of paper tape that's spooled up. By punching in set spots that can be read by a reader... It's, you know, punch or no punch is the equivalent of a one or a zero, essentially. You know, everything's binary, and then the arrangement of it, your tape reader is programmed to know what the arrangement of punch and no punches correspond to, and so you can load a complete program in that way. Obviously, paper tape is a very fragile medium because it is paper, literally paper. It's not even that good fancy paper you print your resumes on. You tear your roll of paper tape, and that's it for that part of your program. It's gone. So a very fragile medium, but this is a medium where you can just feed it into your reader, and it'll read those punched-out areas, and it'll load your program. I would call that a distinguishing moment. There were earlier games specifically targeted at microcomputers before the Dazzler programs. And that's another weird distinction, right? Because of timesharing and because people did have access to timesharing terminals, there were computer game products being sold in book form before there were microcomputers. Because BASIC became a lingua franca and because a little company, very literally at this point, a little company made up of two people called Microsoft, put out a BASIC for the Altair very soon after the Altair appeared. The Altair could understand BASIC. You could program in BASIC on the Altair so long as you got Microsoft BASIC and loaded it into memory. And that was made available on paper tape as well. So you could theoretically 
put it in yourself by manually flipping switches on and off. But if you had a paper tape reader, you could also run it through that way as well. As long as you had basic installed in your Altair, you could play all of these programs that had already been marketed to time-sharing individuals. So David All's 101 basic computer games. PCCs, what to do after you hit return. All of this was available for use on the earliest microcomputers, which is why programs like Hammurabi and Star Trek and Lunar Lander and all of this stuff that we talked about in our time-sharing episode also became some of the very earliest games people were playing on home computers. Hunt the Wumpus, another big one. Those were for anyone using BASIC and had originally been targeted people with terminals. So they weren't specifically in the beginning at that time marketing to home computer users. I mean, they very much were later on when microcomputers became widespread. That's kind of the first distinguishing point. Those things all count as computer games. They all count as computer games for sale. They all count as computer games that you can play on microcomputers, but they were originally made for something else. Then in the in-between area, you have a company called Selby. Selby had started as a company making computer kits, but their computer kit, uh, the Selby 8H, was very unsuccessful. So they got out of that business before the end of 1975. They had one of the earliest kits. They actually predated the Altair, came out in 1974. But that didn't work out too well for them, so they ended up going into software instead. And they did something that was kind of interesting. They released their stuff in books as well. But they released their stuff in books that were targeted at specific microprocessors. So rather than releasing a book of basic programs, which is the thing that all and the PCC and all these other guys were doing, they were actually releasing games in assembly language for you to enter in yourself in assembly language. That sounds like a long, tedious, and complicated task. Apparently some people used to find that kind of thing fun. Personally, I do not, but all the more power to you if you enjoy that. So, in this sense, we could say that probably the first computer games aimed directly at microcomputer users were two products that Selby put out in early 1976 in book form. The first one was called Selby's First Book of Computer Games for the 8008-8080. So these were specifically for the Intel processor, because, of course, they're in assembly language, which means that they only work for the specific computing setup that assembly language is for. In this case, the Intel 8008-8080, because they were compatible with each other. It's the same basic architecture, that x86 architecture that continues to be used today. So they made this book of games, It's a humongous book. It's not War and Peace or anything, but it's over 100 pages long with exactly three games in it. As I said before, assembly language is long and tedious. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, these were pretty simple games. One was called Space Capture, another was called Hexpawn, and then uh, a Hangman game was the third one. You know, just these kind of simple games. They released a second book, This book only had one game, because it was a slightly more complicated game, which was Selby's Galaxy Game for the 8008-8080. This was Star Trek, essentially. You know, the names have been changed to protect the innocent and uh, prevent being sued for copyright infringement. 
But Galaxy Game was essentially the classic mainframe Star Trek game. Balance power to weapons, engine shields, find all the ships, destroy all the ships, don't run out of power, don't get destroyed. That's standard format. These may very well have been the first computer games specifically targeted at microcomputers. And you know they were targeted at microcomputers because they were written in the assembly language of a microprocessor. That's not going to help anyone who has a dumb terminal trying to hook into a timesharing system, like 101 basic computer games would work. I would still draw a distinction here, though, because like I said, they were books. You had to put these in manually if you didn't kill yourself in the process from the tedium and horror of it. And if you managed to get all of those ones and zeros in without making a single mistake, because (laughs) you have to enter that in flawlessly or it won't run, then you did get to play a game, but it's selling ones and zeros. I mean, I suppose at the end of the day, it's all selling ones and zeros. It's selling you the ones and zeros, and there's you're the middleman, and then you take those ones and zeros that you bought and turn them into a game. It's like the difference between buying a rose bush and buying rose seeds, right? <laughs> Almost. Sort of the difference between buying a cake and buying some cake mix and ingredients. Yeah, exactly. There's some assembly required here. There's an extra level of care. So I didn't get those games, those Selby games in my book because I didn't know they existed. This is some of the stuff Kate Willard discovered. But I would still draw the line between that and the earliest computer games that were really marketed as games because you didn't have to put them in yourself. They would just load mostly on their own. That's where Chromemco comes in, which we talked about a moment ago, and that's where their Dazzler comes in. And that's where their paper tape software comes in. The very first programs that were available, uh, and these were available at least by June of 1976, because at that point they were being advertised in the computer magazines at the time. The early Dazzler programs were mostly not games. They were mostly graphical programs that just kind of made patterns or shapes or whatever on the screen. But they did do a tic-tac-toe game in their first wave. In my mind, that, as far as we know right now, something older could arrive. But as far as we know right now, I think that is the very first computer game that was marketed and sold specifically to owners of microcomputers and only owners of microcomputers because it was made to work with a specific Dazzler board that was sold in a format where you only had to load it into memory rather than having to program it into memory. So I know that's a lot of caveats. That's a lot of, it's the first of this when you don't count that, when you don't count that, when you don't count that, when you don't count that. I think whether one agrees with those distinctions or not, I hope at least that those distinctions are kind of clear and it kind of makes sense where I might choose to put the dividing lines in those various places. I don't know about everyone else, but it certainly is a fair distinction and makes sense to me. (laughs) All right. By the end of 1976, so a few months later, by October, the first ads for the Dazzler just have the tic-tac-toe game and a few other programs that aren't strictly games. By October, Promemco has a little more going on. They've been expanding their Dazzler lineup. The Dazzler thing is something that people have latched on to because it sure beats switches and blinking lights any day of the week, let me tell ya. So people have been hooking their Altairs into their televisions, and they've been fooling around with this kind of stuff. By October, they have actually Space War, of all things, 
on paper tape as well for use with the Dazzler. That just goes to show again how incredibly influential Space War is as a program. It's one of the first things that gets released for one of the first microcomputer platforms, just like it was the first widespread mainframe computer game, just like a derivative of it was the very first arcade game, coin-operated video game. So, too, is Space War one of the very first commercial games for microcomputer platforms as well. This stuff's probably not selling much. They're probably not even selling in the hundreds of copies. They're probably selling in the dozens of copies. But you can buy Tic-Tac-Toe and you can buy Space War on paper tape, all for the uh, low, 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 low price of $15 each, which is actually pretty expensive because this is 1976 money. So let's do our favorite thing and go to some inflation calculator somewhere on the Internet. If in 1976 I purchased an item for $15, then in 2020, $68. So let's think about that for a second. The typical video game today is a $60 product. For $60, you can get something like Doom Eternal, in which you can rip and tear for hours on end through incredibly beautiful and gory levels of demonic hell. Or you could get Animal Crossing and learn math and build all sorts of things, have fun with your kids and enjoy yourself, or play both Doom and Animal Crossing at the same time, because apparently that's a thing right now. (laughs) Right. Back in 1976, the equivalent of $70, $68, gave you a paper tape that allowed you to put tic-tac-toe in your computer. Wait a second. I can play that with just paper and pencil and my nephew. Why am I spending $70 on a game? Yeah. (laughs) And even something more complex like Space War is still pretty limited in what's actually there compared to a modern game. So, you know, people complain about games being expensive today. And yeah, sometimes they are. but, But just remember, back in the day, the equivalent of $68 bought you a roll of paper that had tic tac toe on it. And if that paper got damaged, that's some expensive paper. $70 for a piece of paper that my kid brother can just get his hands on and put a new hole in it and the thing won't work. The cat can look at it and go, ooh, new (laughs) shiny toy. I'm going to treat it like toilet paper. (laughs) Then you got this giant mess everywhere. You try to put it back together. You're not sure what part goes to what. You find tape. You put the tape together. And then you just hope the thing even reads after that. (laughs) Right. Now, of course, you know, other than your cat analogy, that does bring up a good point that these computers were being bought by adults because they were very expensive and they were being used by adults. So it's not like they expected little Johnny to take good care of the paper tape. But yeah, your cat gets at it or your child gets at it or you spill some water. (laughs) Yeah, you're in trouble. There goes your $68. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty limited and it was pretty expensive. So you can see how it's not really an industry at this point and how they're not really selling that much of this stuff. But that's kind of the beginning here in 1976. There's another company at the same time that's getting individual visual displays called Processor Technology, or Processor Tech for short. This is another company that got in on the peripheral business. Because you see, the Altair, uh, like I said, it was made to be expandable. But MITS was a very small company. It was more than two guys in a garage. I mean, they actually had a factory and an assembly area. It wasn't anything fancy, but it was more than two people in a garage. It was still a small operation. It was having trouble handling things. 
the founder of the company had hoped to keep that entire business for himself. He wanted to make all the expansion boards, make all that money. But his operation was so slipshod, was so uh, difficult to get going that they were barely able to keep up with orders for the computer itself. And when they got into the boards, they were often faulty. They didn't work right. Manufacturing problems. They're not really a professional company. So that left the market wide open for all these other guys to get in. That's why you get a company like Chromemco making the Dazzler. Chromemco was actually authorized because at that time, Mitz was not making a graphic board and they knew each other through Popular Electronics. So they were kind of buddy-buddy and It was fine, but most of the companies that got in were unauthorized. It wasn't illegal. Mitz was hoping that they would get that business, and and it didn't work out that way. So you got a lot of these companies making hardware. Most of them are just making memory boards or I.O. boards, input-output boards, for other peripherals like tape readers or disk drives or that kind of thing. You only had a couple of these guys doing graphics. Kremimco was one, and Processor Technology was the other. Processor Technology created something called the Video Display Module 1, VDM1 for short, that was like the Dazzler, something you could plug into an Altair, and then you would be able to display graphics on your television. It was a little more limited than the Dazzler, but the same idea. And then after they did that, they actually created their own computer, which was the Sol 20, which I mentioned briefly at the top of the episode here. And the Sol 20 was one of the very early of these, not just fully assembled computers, but also fully integrated computers with a keyboard and a monitor and all of that. You could buy it as a kit. People that liked fooling around with kits could buy a Sol 20 and solder everything themselves. But they also made it available as a fully assembled computer as well. The Sol 20 was very briefly one of the hottest computers on the market. They sold about 12,000 of them altogether, somewhere between 10 and 12,000. It's hard to get perfectly accurate figures for stuff in this period of time, which was very good for a kit computer. It was very quickly overshadowed by the Trinity because the Trinity were even more sophisticated, were even more user-friendly, were just more everything that people kind of wanted. So the Soul 20 kind of faded away. By 1979, it was pretty much done, but It was one of the first computers that people bought that really had that monitor and the keyboard uh, literally right out of the box. I mean, monitor capability, you're still talking about generally plugging it into your television, but the computer had output, had video output already in it without need to buy an expansion board like you did for the Altair. So the Sol 20 was the other kind of early computer that started to have some games on it because it had a graphical capability. And the company was trying to push it beyond hobbyists because they were selling it fully assembled, not just as a kit. So we had Chromemco with Tic-Tac-Toe in June 76 and Space War in October 76. And then they put out some other games, you know, into early 77 and whatnot as well. In December 76, you have games starting to appear for the Sol 20. And the first two products that came out there before the end of 1976 were a series of games created by a hobbyist named Steve Dompier for processor technology. In December 1976, they released something called the Game Pack 1. The Game Pack 1 was available on paper tape, just like the Promemco games, but it was also available on cassette. These are some of the very first games. They may even be the very first games. Again, something else obscure may come up. But 
These may be the very first games that were available on a magnetic medium, uh, in this case a cassette tape, instead of on a paper medium. They had something called Game Pack 1 that they were advertising by December 1976 that had several games written by this guy, uh, Steve Dompier. Probably the most interesting one of those was something called Target. It was a really basic target shooting game. You have a gun battery at the bottom of the screen. You have alien ships that are flying down from the top of the screen, and you shoot at them. This is pre-Space Invaders. It's not a Space Invaders clone, and it's not Space Invaders style. Because it's target shooting, they're not shooting back at you and you're losing lives and all of that. This is a pre-Space Invaders world where the shoot 'em up didn't exist yet. But it's a very basic target shooting game. I wouldn't be surprised if it was inspired by some of the basic target shooting games appearing in video game arcades at the time, though I don't know that for sure. I don't really know anything about target's creation. And the display for uh, the Sol, you know, these are pretty primitive displays because you don't have a lot of memory for screen memory. So this game was actually just character-based graphics. So your spaceship was an arrow. The ships were alphanumeric characters. So the letter A would come flying towards you, or the asterisk would come flying towards you, or whatever. And that's what your little error had to shoot down. So the graphics are very primitive, the gameplay is very primitive, but it's still kind of the beginning of something. Their prices were comparable for the paper tape, sold for fourteen fifty. But the cassette tape, because that's an easier and cheaper medium to work with, you could have that for just the low, low price of $9.50. Ooh. $9.50. So $43. For the same price that in the 90s you paid for a PlayStation game. So for the same price as Resident Evil, Final Fantasy VII, you could have yourself an arrow that shot at letters. On magnetic media. <laughs> That's the key part there. Magnetic media. It's kid-proof, it's cat-proof, and you can spill water on it. Yeah, just, uh, you know, don't put it next to your powerful electromagnets. You'll be sad. But I need that electromagnet in order to make coffee. Heat up the water and all. <laughs> yes. Still a fragile medium compared to a disc, but a little better. A little better. They also put out a variation of Star Trek. So Star Trek, as you're already seeing, was one of the very first very popular games on these early microcomputers. It works very well on these computers. The graphics are very simple because the original game was on a teletype. So by necessity, the graphics were simple. But it has very deep strategic gameplay. So it's got that good combination of depth and simplicity, which seems contradictory, but it works that made it a very early popular game. So they, they actually had a real-time version of it called Trek 80, so it wasn't turn-based like the original Star Trek, but other than that, it was the same type of game. The final kind of major development in 1976 was the creation of the first computer game that came from a software company rather than from a hardware company which is kind of an important distinction in and of itself, because just like in video games at the beginning here, software is seen as ancillary to your hardware, and that was true in the computer industry going way back. I mean, you bought an IBM computer system. Well, actually, you leased an IBM computer system because they didn't let you buy them, but you leased an IBM computer system. And because you were nice enough to lease an IBM computer system, they threw in all the software. 
because software was not seen as the valuable product hardware was. Now, by the mid-1970s, that had changed. There was a computer software industry by the 1970s. You still got a lot of your stuff from the company you bought your computer from in the mainframe space, but there were third-party database software, particularly companies. Digital Equipment Corporation, for its many computers, never really cared about software, so there was a whole ecosystem supporting that. But the idea of separate computer software in the hobbyist market where everything was do-it-yourself was still kind of a new and even a little bit foreign concept. It took a little bit of time for software companies to get in on this whole thing. But the first real software company was probably an organization called Personal Software, which became most famous for VisiCalc. They're the company that published VisiCalc. But pre-VisiCalc, their first real hit program was a game called MicroChess. Microcomputers and chess. And I don't have to put in a bunch of assembly language? <laughs> yes. MicroChess was created by a guy named Peter Jennings. He was British, but he had moved to Canada when he was young, and so he was essentially Canadian, even though he was British-born. He started tinkering around with computers at a very young age. He learned Fortran in junior high school and was planning to become a physicist. But after the moon landings, when uh, NASA was cutting back and the government was cutting back on scientists, he decided that that probably wasn't going to work out for him very well. So he went and got his MBA instead. He was interested in computers for a long time. He had worked with computers in high school and college when... The early microcomputers came out like the Altair. He didn't buy in basically because they were too expensive. And Altair was $595. And that was for the basic system without expanded memory or peripherals or anything else. So let's plug $595 into our fancy calculator and see what that was in 1975. I'm going to go with around $10,000. Not quite that bad. That would have been mini computer territory. But uh, $2,854.62. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't even really pay that much for a computer now. Yep, but of course the computer you're paying for now is a whole lot more computer. We're talking about a box that doesn't even come with all the parts soldered onto the board. Wait a minute, I still have to solder this thing? Yeah, this was the kit. So you're talking about a board where you have to solder the parts, put it in a metal case, a rectangular metal case, and all it has is switches and lights. So uh, I think you can get a little more with $2,800 today. I would hope so. A little more. So those computers were out of his price range. But in 1976, Moss Technology, the same guys that would make the 6502 and come up with the Commodore PET, came out with a development system. Generally speaking, the distinction between a development system and a full-fledged computer is a development system works with the microprocessor but is very limited. It has even less hardware than a full-fledged computer, so it's very limited in its functionality, and it's basically useful for playing around with the processor and programming the processor, but it's not useful for actually doing anything else with. But they came out with a development system called the Kim one which was a simple computer, but it was a really, really simple limited computer. But it was uh, cheap enough that Peter Jennings could buy it, so he bought this Kim one and he created a chess program for it, which was MicroChess, and started selling it in November 1976. That was probably the first computer game that was sold on a medium that you could load it yourself rather than being a type-in listing. 
that was not sold by a hardware company of some kind. Because all the Dazzler stuff was sold to promote the Dazzler, all the Soul 20 stuff was sold to promote the Soul 20, etc. He was just selling it himself at first. He formed his own company in early 1977 called Microware Limited. That was just for legal reasons. I mean, it was still just him. There wasn't a real company there. You know, he started porting it to other systems. So it started on the Kim 1, which really didn't sell much, but then he got it on to the S100 bus, which is what the Altair and the MSI and the Soul and all these other computers used. From there, he got it on to the TRS-80 and the PET. So he was starting to get it around a little bit. And that's what got him the attention of this other guy that was actually the founder of personal software, Dan Filstra. Filstra was an electrical engineer. He met one of the contributors to Popular Electronics, this hobbyist magazine we've mentioned before that the Altair was introduced in, and the Dazzler was introduced in, and the Sol 20 was introduced in, a guy named Carl Helmers, who was a regular contributor. They decided that since this computer thing was becoming big and becoming its own big hobbyist field, that there was enough interest and enough demand for this kind of thing that they could move out of the general hobbyist magazines, which included all electronic devices, and actually create a hobbyist magazine just for the computer hardware and software crowd. So they joined together to found Byte, which was the very first computer magazine, as far as I know, something else could come up, that was completely devoted to microcomputers. There were computer magazines that were targeted at consumers before that, most notably David All's own Creative Computing. Again, you have to remember that the broader sphere of computer users used to mean people using time-sharing systems, not microcomputers. So when creative computing was established, it was before microcomputers were really a thing. It was targeted at timeshares. Byte was targeted at microcomputer hobbyists, people building their own computers, making their own software. So they did Byte together, and then Filstra went back to school to get his MBA, and really focused on market research in this nascent microcomputer industry as part of his degree. And from the stuff that he learned about the industry while he was doing his degree, he decided to found his own software company. So he founded Personal Software in 1977, which was one of the very earliest computer software companies. He learned about MicroChess. He got in with him. Peter Jennings joined the company, became, uh, I think, a co-owner of the company. They released MicroChess, and they got their big break because Radio Shack took it. Radio Shack did the Tandy, which owned Radio Shack, did the TRS-80 computer, which was available in Radio Shack stores. The thing about Radio Shack that set it apart is that Radio Shack was everywhere. They were all over the place, sort of like how you see fast food places all over the place in the United States. That is very much how Radio Shack used to be. Yeah, and it was all throughout small-town America, and that's, that's a big and important distinction, because the early computer stores that were popping up, they were popping up all over the country. They weren't just in Silicon Valley or California. They were all over the country, but they tended to be in cities. Big cities, medium-sized cities, but cities. To walk into a store and buy a computer in this period, which really did mean going into a computer store, they were not mass market products. If you weren't in a more developed urban area, you didn't really have any options except Radio Shack. 
because Radio Shack was everywhere. It was in small town America. There were thousands upon thousands of Radio Shacks because the owner of Tandy Corporation, Charles Tandy, was a big believer that the way to grow his business was to expand aggressively into all corners of the American experience. One thing that set the TRS-80 apart and why it gained market penetration so much faster than Apple or Commodore or the kit computers is these people were over the moon if they sold a few thousand computers in a year. By the second year of the TRS-80, Tandy was selling 100,000 a year. You know, it was an, literally an order of magnitude greater than what anyone else was doing, and a big part of that is because they were everywhere. Radio Shack mostly did its own software for the TRS-80. They didn't mind if other people were making software for the computer. They weren't trying to lock out other people. But in terms of what they sold in Radio Shack stores, they mostly just sold their own stuff. Little simple programs that they made themselves. They had a catalog. Radio Shack was very famous for its catalogs, just like Sears was famous for its catalogs that they'd mail out to everybody. The Radio Shack catalog would have the same stuff that generally it's available in Radio Shack stores. And it would basically just be Radio Shack stuff because the Tandy Corporation was basically a closed network. The Tandy Corporation owned a bunch of manufacturing companies that manufactured electronic products that then Radio Shack stores sold. So it was this closed feedback loop. They didn't really take much stuff from other people. They designed their own stuff, built their own stuff, sold their own stuff. Radio Shack also had franchises. They had directly owned stores and they had franchises. Franchises would sometimes go out and look for other product and bring outside product into the stores to sell. But company-owned Radio Shacks basically were just part of this closed-loop system. But occasionally, if something caught their eye, they would license from someone else. It wasn't all exclusive. It was just largely exclusive. So Microchess, as one of the very early interesting programs available for the TRS-80, was actually picked up by Radio Shack to sell in its stores. They made a deal with personal software to sell Microchess and Radio Shacks. Because of that, because it had this massive distribution that literally nobody had in the 76, 77, 78 time period, they sold about 50,000 copies of the TRS-80 version of the game. Nice. Which was huge. We don't have good numbers for this period. I wish we did, but it's all of these small mom-and-pop, fly-by-night kind of organizations. You don't start getting really solid computer game numbers until the early 1980s. But from what little I can tell, and it's mostly anecdotal, but from what little I can tell, I mean, really, in this period, you were over the moon if you sold a few hundred copies of something. Forget about thousands. A few hundred was good. The market was very small. The product was very expensive equivalent of $68 for that little paper tape of tic-tac-toe. The market was very fragmented, even though BASIC was a lingua francia. There were a lot of computers in this time period, and so there was a lot of fragmentation of the market. So for all of these reasons, it was pretty small, and the Trinity started to fix that, started to change that. But even those computers took time to build momentum, and it wasn't really till VisiCalc from personal software hit the Apple II in 1979 that you really had a big, booming market, and you could start selling a lot of stuff. So 50000 was huge, and it was because of that Radio Shack connection. And that's 50000 over the period of, you know, a couple of years, I think, not like all in one year. I mean, it took it a while to get there. 
that's kind of the first phase. Uh, that was a little rambly in places, but just to kind of bring it together. The first phase was you had the time-sharing stuff that was already available. You had books that were already created with basic programs for time-sharing systems. This stuff migrated to computers. Then you had a few companies that were getting involved with specifically catering to microcomputers, but continuing kind of this book trend. I'm thinking here particularly of Selby. Then you had the first hardware manufacturers that were starting to promote their own hardware by offering games. And these hardware companies were the first two companies that really got into graphics technology on microcomputers, Chromemco and Processor Tech. Then you had the very first third-party software company of any consequence coming in, Personal Software, and they had MicroChess. So that's phase one of this early period. Now we'll proceed into phase two, which isn't quite as complicated. Phase two is the beginning of a real, more varied software industry. And this comes about for some of the continuing trend lines that I was talking about a second ago. The kick computers are vanishing at this point, not only because a broader market of people don't want to solder boards to get true mass market. You have to get out of the soldering board phase, but also because since these companies were smaller fly by night kind of firms that never really had a great handle on product design and manufacturing, they were often late in their shipments. Their products were often defective. A lot of them just didn't have a great reputation. So when Radio Shack and Commodore, two companies with a long history in electronics as real honest-to-God companies, plus Apple, which was new but was professionally managed by people that came from Intel, so even though it was founded by Jobs and Wozniak, the people running the company at this point are Mike Markula and Michael Scott, who are both old Intel people. These companies naturally take over the business, not only because they have a more accessible product, but they have a reliable product that you know you're probably kind of sort of going to get. I mean, in the beginning, they were backordered just like everybody else, but, you know, they sorted out their issues and they were just more professional. Now that hardware is really no longer the focus anymore, because people are buying computers like the TRS-80 or the Apple II that are fully assembled, fully integrated with most of their parts, et cetera, et cetera. You're really getting into a software phase. You're getting a market that's expanded enough that you're getting more interested software people coming in. But you're also getting a broad enough user base that this isn't just the software hobbyists that are making their own programs, that like typing in programs, that like trading programs amongst themselves. But you're getting another wave of people that in really are more the general public. As we said, you still have to be a little tech savvy a little not afraid to interact with technology because there's no start button in that bottom left-hand corner. There's just a blinking green cursor. You are talking about people coming in now that really aren't even necessarily interested in type-in listings. They're like, okay, I've heard these computer things are the future. I've got one. Give me something to do with it. So what you have is the second wave starting to cater to the third wave. And what I mean by that is you get the first companies that are founded by software enthusiasts that themselves were making their own programs, trading their programs with other people, collecting programs out of magazines, etc., etc. They're starting to say like, okay, there's these other people getting involved in this. There are these other people interested. Let's collect some of these programs 
and let's contact some of these people that we know are making these programs like us. Let's gather them all together, package them, and make them available to these general public people that just don't want to get involved in that scene. In the modern day and age, kind of a good example of this, it's not quite completely modern, but a good example of this would like be the, it's not a perfect example, but the doom modding days back in the 90s. You had this kind of hierarchy that existed where you had the game and then you had software that allowed you to create your own levels and mods and all of this stuff. So you had people that were very interested in hacking into the software that were creating their own levels, creating their own mods. Then they would put this stuff out on the internet, and it would usually be free on the internet. So if you could find this website or that website, you could download this level or that level. But then for the people that were not internet savvy, because this was the early days of the internet, and didn't really know how to go out there and look at that stuff, but loved Doom and wanted more levels, you had value software companies that would go onto the internet and go, yoink, 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 take all of these levels, put them on a disc, put it in a box, and sell it in Best Buy. It's kind of the same hierarchy of people that we're talking about here. The hardcore software people, the software traders, and then the software traders being like, hey, let's package this stuff and sell it to the people that have no idea what's going on in the world. And I don't mean that in a scammy way. I just mean that you're reaching an audience that isn't quite savvy enough to find these programs on their own by doing type-in listings or going to computer club meetings, etc., etc. It looks like they are geared towards the general population as far as computers go. The general population goes, oh, I heard about these computer things. That's awesome. Great. Let's go get one. What the heck am I going to do with this thing? No, I don't have time to go and learn all this stuff. I have to take little Johnny to soccer practice or whatever. I don't have time to go to user groups, meetings, whatever, learn all this stuff, read, figure out the technicalities of stuff. Then I find this company out here that's willing to sell me a tape and I just put it in my computer and I type load tape and then fantastic, it loads. I have a game. I have my program. I have whatever I want. That's much more accessible for people. Right. So there were two kinds of companies that were involved in this. The first were the computer magazines themselves. And this was particularly true of Creative Computing, which we talked about before. That was David All's magazine that he founded in 1974 to cater to home computer users. At that time, it meant time-sharing, but very quickly it meant people that had microcomputers in their home as well. And then there was a magazine called SoftSide, which was one of the very first magazines dedicated to the TRS-80 after the TRS-80 came out. Both of these magazines were catered to a general audience. They were both magazines with the philosophy of, let's demystify computers for everybody, let's get everybody involved. Some of the articles might have still been very technical because they also want to grab that core audience as well. Uh, Particularly creative computing, it's as much about educating people as to the potential of computing as it is to cater to a hardcore audience. Both of these magazines, they had type-in listings, as did many other magazines at the time. There are so many magazines popping up in this period. You have Byte, you have Kilobod, Southern California Computer Society ends up creating a magazine which becomes Interface Age. There's a lot of magazines. But what these two magazines start to do is, in addition to having type-in listings and articles, they create software labels where they compile some of the popular programs on cassette tape and then sell those cassette tapes. SoftSide had something that they called the TRS Software Exchange. 
they called it an exchange, but it wasn't an exchange. They were selling stuff that obviously was only TRS-80 programs because that's their market. And then Creative Computing had a label as well where they sold stuff. So they sold a lot of these common games. So this is, again, how some of these timesharing games permeate. Because you could get Hunt the Wumpus this way. You could get Star Trek this way. You could get Hammurabi this way. All of these classic games. And they also took solicitations from people out in the world. Softside, for instance, was the starting place for Scott Adams, who later created the company Adventure International. Scott Adams was one of the first guys to do adventure games on microcomputers. His game Adventureland in 1978 was most likely the first microcomputer adventure program, taking the adventure concept and scaling it down so it would work on a microcomputer. And he got his start by submitting that program to SoftSide, which then sold it through the TRS Software Exchange. Now, he got royalties from it. They didn't just steal the program from him. He then got a cut of the profits. And then a month or so after he started selling it through SoftSide, he also started selling it through Creative Computing. So this was an early outlet for some of the very earliest important programmers to get their games out there. Uh, another guy that was very popular in SoftSide, very prolific in SoftSide, was a guy named Lance Miklas. He never turned computer games into a full-time profession like Scott Adams did, but he was exposed to computers and computer games while working for a public broadcasting station at a university in Vermont. He saw all the games that the kids, the university kids were having fun playing, and he was getting involved with microcomputers, and so he decided to adapt his own versions of simple adventure games and whatnot into computer programs as well. And he also went through the TRS Software Exchange and sold his programs that way. These magazines served as one of the first outlets. And, you know, they were published games because they had their own logo or label on the cassette, and then the cassette had these specific games on it. You know, it wasn't just like you, you got a blank generic disc that had a bunch of pirated games on it or something. These were real publishing operations. It's just they were tied to magazines. Their primary reason for existing was not doing software. That's just something they started doing on the side that came naturally from what they were already doing in connecting people and gathering programs, etc. That's one side of it. The other side of it is there were a few companies that were started by some of these software collectors that I was talking about. These are the kind of people that are really dialed in. They're reading all the computer magazines. They're probably going to at least one, if not multiple, computer club meetings. They're creating their own programs at home, but they're not necessarily selling them so much as they're taking them around to local computer shops and to local computer clubs and trading software. I'll give you this for this, that for that. Maybe they sell a few of them to the local computer store, which puts it up for other people to buy, but it's it's all very localized. It's not company-based. So, you know, if you're in Los Angeles doing this kind of thing, Rainbow Computing was one of the first big computer stores in Los Angeles. Rainbow Computing wasn't buying software from companies because they didn't exist yet. But maybe one of the local computer enthusiasts walks in and is like, hey, look at this neat new program that I just typed up at home for fun. And they put it in the computer and demo it. And the Rainbow Computer guys are like, that's so cool. Why don't you give us 10 copies and we'll hang them on the pegboard over there. We'll sell them for whatever we sell them for, $15 or whatever. And, uh, you know, we'll give you a cut of the profits if they walk off. And it's like, great, let's do that. 
this very informal kind of cottage industry kind of thing. Well, then after you're doing that for a while, it's like, okay, so yeah, I'm trading games with people and people like my games. I'm hanging them on pegs and Ziploc baggies at the store. And, you know, a few copies of that are going down. Maybe we can turn this into a company. Maybe we can start collecting everyone's games and centralize this and make it a little more sophisticated. There are two companies that come to mind, one of which was founded in 1977, one of which was founded in 1978. Neither one was probably selling anything before 78. So just to give us kind of the time frame here, we're moving from this very early stuff going on in 76 and 77 into the kind of stuff that's going on tail end of 77, beginning of 78. The first of these companies was a company called Soft Tape. Soft Tape came together in a kind of roundabout way. Like I said, these first guys, they weren't necessarily thinking of software companies. This is what makes them different from the guys that come just a couple of years later, like Online Systems and Broderbund, is that they almost kind of fall into this accidentally, rather than making a more calculated attempt to create a company. There was a guy named Bill Smith. He was one of these do-it-yourself hobbyists who read Popular Electronics, this magazine that keeps coming up over and over again. He saw an article about building an S100 computer. I don't know if it was an article on the Altair or one of the ones that came after. You see, the Altair used a bus that had 100 channels. And as other kit companies came in to take some of this market, they actually cloned the Altair because since there was a robust Altair peripheral market for daughter boards, when other companies made computers, they wanted to make sure that those daughter boards would also work in their computers so that things wouldn't get super duper fragmented. So the Altair bus actually ended up becoming a standard. It was not proprietary. It was not patented. It was not kept a secret by Altair. So when I talk about the S100 computers, what that means is that's any computer that used the 100-channel bus that was pioneered by the Altair. So he saw an S100 computer kit and decided to uh, construct one. And he had a friend named Dave Mosher who was also kind of interested in this, and they built one of these computers together. So as I told you, oftentimes these computers, these computer kits, you're talking about a board and the chips that go on the board. You're not getting necessarily much of anything else with that computer. So Smith and Mosher decided to go into business with a plexiglass case of their own design for the MSI computer, which was one of the more popular Altair clones. And then they expanded from that to also create cases for other computer brands as well. So they were in the hardware business at first, doing these plexiglass cases. But you see, uh, Mosher, he was in aquarium supplies, which is presumably where they got the whole idea of doing plexiglass cases to begin with, because similar to the aquarium stuff he's already doing. So he knew another guy in the aquarium business named Gary Koffler. And Gary Koffler had gotten into the Apple II. And Gary Koffler was trading software with local Apple II groups and met up with and really hit it off with another guy trading games in the same circle named Bill DePew. It's these strings of coincidences where this guy knows this guy, this guy knows this guy, and then Smith, Coughlin, and DePew decide to get together and create their own company to sell hardware and software for the Apple II, and they establish a company called SoftTech. They learn that SoftTech is already taken, so then they change it into SoftTape. They took a kind of different approach because... Remember, this is a period of time 
when the value of computer software on microcomputers is not well established yet. People don't really understand what the value of that product was. So at this point, they didn't feel like they could just sell computer games nationally. The way we think of selling games today, where you create a game, you press that game into a bunch of DVDs, back in that day it would be cassette tapes, of course, and just send it out there into the world. So rather than do that, rather than put out individual games, what they did is they created modules, each of which had three or four games on them. What you did is you paid a $20 membership fee. It's a little like a book of the month club, except you weren't obligated to order something every month. You paid a $20 membership fee, and that entitled you to buy any module that you wanted for $2 a piece. So these are pretty reasonable prices when you consider that you used to get tic-tac-toe for $15 just like two years before this. Now, yeah, you're putting in a lot of money up front, 20 bucks just to get your foot in the door, but then you can buy a cassette tape that may have three or four different games on it for just $2 after that. So at the end of the day, you're effectively paying about a third the price for a game. Right. And again, it's just because they didn't quite realize the value of computer software yet. They didn't think they could just say, introducing this amazing new game, give us 10 bucks for it. They felt they had to do kind of this system. For instance, the first module had three games. So for two bucks, or 22 bucks technically, if you're counting the membership fee, you got three games. Something called Saucer War, where you're a ship on one side of the screen and there's another ship on the other side of the screen and you're moving up and down and you're trying to shoot each other. Then there was a game called Digital Derby, which was just a horse race betting game. So, you know, you just pick who you think is going to win and then it runs itself. You're not actually controlling the horses. Both of those were by Bill DePew. And then the third game, a more interesting game, was created by an outside author named Gary Shannon. And this game was called Advanced Dragon Maze. It was a maze game where basically you have to get out of a maze while a dragon's trying to catch you. I want to emphasize something about these games, though, and this is going to be true for a lot of what we're talking about going forward here. These games are on the Apple II. The Apple II is a graphical computer. It has a bitmap screen. That's good. What we have to remember about the Apple II, though, is that a bitmap screen takes a lot of memory. And early Apple IIs only had usually 4 to 8K of memory. You could get more, but it was ludicrously expensive. So most people in this time period had the 4K model or the 8K model. If they had really splurged, they might have 12 to 16K. They probably don't have more than that. Not in 1977-78. The Apple II was capable of what it called high-res graphics, which was a resolution of 140 by 92. That means 140 pixels across by 92 pixels down. But you had to have 12K of RAM in your computer to do high-res mode. There were some people that had 16K Apple IIs in these early days. Most people had a 4K or an 8K computer which meant high-res mode was out. The early Apple II games, the very early ones, the ones we're talking about in this time period, were basically all done in low-res mode because otherwise you wouldn't be able to make enough money by selling them just to the people that have the advanced computers. Low-res mode was 40 by 48. And no, I did not forget any zeros there. 40 by 48. You could do 16 colors 
which was more than you could do in high-res mode. High-res mode, you could only do six colors. But 40 by 48 means gigantic pixels. So these early games, I talked about Saucer War. Saucer War is two spaceships on either side of the screen shooting at each other. Well, these spaceships are rectangles. It's really block versus block. I'm this block shooting at this other block, and then I have to smash it with a hammer or something. (laughs) But really, I have to go and search through a maze as a block, fleeing another block. That's the next thing I was going to say. In Advanced Dragon Maze, you're fleeing a dragon. You know you're fleeing a dragon because the game is called Dragon Maze. You don't know it by looking at the red block that is moving through the maze on the screen. Are you sure it was red? It could have been green. I have a long, protracted history with a particular green dragon, and I don't want to repeat it. (laughs) No, this one was red. But it's a block. When we say they're blocky graphics, they really are blocky graphics. Literally graphics of blocks, because the pixels are gigantic, so you can't do much with that. You're basically just stacking squares on each other. The other thing you have to remember is that the inputs that the Apple II came with, as we talked about in our Apple II episode, the goal of Wozniak in creating the Apple II the way he created it. It's not the whole reason he created it, but it was kind of his benchmark for what he was doing, was to be able to play Breakout, a perfect game of Breakout on a microcomputer, a perfect adaptation. So the controls, in the very beginning, you had your keyboard, of course. The computer came with a keyboard. The only other interface device that came with an Apple II was a paddle controller, you know, a dial, like the dials you use to control a Pong game or to control Breakout. So again, because this is the early days and this is before people are creating joysticks and mice and all sorts of other stuff that becomes widespread, these early games are mostly all controlled by a paddle controller or the keyboard. I mean, you can use like arrow keys on the keyboard or if it's a faster action game where you need the inputs to be smoother, you're talking about using a paddle controller. Most of these games just have gameplay where you're moving up and down or you're rotating. Because that's all a paddle controller can do. Why is Saucer War two ships on opposite side of the screen and it's not like Space War where they're moving all around the screen? Because you're controlling it most likely with the paddle. So up, down. That's all you get. Glorified Pong. So we're talking very primitive stuff there, exactly. So Soft Take took from a lot of places, but probably their most prolific programmer and one of the more interesting of the early Apple II pioneers was a guy named Bob Bishop. He's not very well known today, but he was one of the very first prolific game creators on the Apple II. And he didn't work exclusively with Soft Tape. He worked with a few early companies, but Soft Tape ended up publishing an awful lot of his stuff. So he's worth talking about in this context here. Bishops was actually a physics guy at the University of Wisconsin. He was actually working a summer job in the school science library. He was in physics. He wasn't in electrical engineering. He wasn't in computer science. But he was working the summer job at the science library. It's not a lot of people there. It's the summer at an academic institution. So he's reading books to pass the time, and he happens to read a textbook on Fortran. That got him kind of interested in computer stuff. So even though he's in physics, he's doing computers on the side. When he graduates, he gets a master's at UCLA. He goes and works for some hotshot Bay Area companies like Xerox which is East Coast, but they have Bay Area offices, the good old Jet Propulsion Laboratory at NASA. Then in 1975, he's one of these guys that's reading the hobbyist magazines, and he sees these advertisements for their computer kits, and he's like, 
I will take myself one of those computer kits. The one he ends up buying is actually the Apple One. The Apple One did not sell many units, probably like 100 or so. But Bob Bishop was one of these Apple One buyers, and that was a expensive computer, $666.66. That's a lot of sixes. That is a lot of sixes. You know, obviously the 666 connotation is pretty obvious. Wozniak has told the story different ways. He's alluded to the fact that it's the special number, but he also said in his autobiography that they were just uh, dividing their costs by uh, a third, or multiplying their costs by a third, I mean, to come up with a price. And so that just happened to be what the multiple was. So maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe they were being impish. He claims they didn't realize they were even doing the number of the beast. Neither of them's deeply religious, so that's not unbelievable. But who knows? Point is, yes, it is a lot of sixes. You know, he started doing games on it. He actually did Star Trek for the Apple One. There weren't many games created for the Apple One, but he did Star Trek, the classic tactical game on the Apple One. So when the Apple II came out, he really wanted one, but he couldn't afford it. That was an expensive computer. That was over $1,200 for an Apple II when it came out. So he wanted one, but he couldn't afford one. So he actually went to Apple, which was still a pretty small company at this point, talked to Mike Markula and Steve Wozniak, and was like, I really want one of your computers. I'm a big programmer. I do lots of stuff, but I just can't afford it. And they were like, okay, fine, trade in your Apple One, and we'll knock a lot off the price of the Apple II. They did not have a formal policy of accepting trade-ins of Apple Ones. But they cut this guy a break. I guess he impressed them somehow or another, and they're like, fine, your loyal customer will do it. Of course, he joked later, he's unfortunately since passed on, but he joked in later interviews that, you know, that ended up being a bum deal for him because the Apple One ended up being a super-duper rare collector's item, and if he had just held on to his Apple One for 30 years... <laughs> if he had kept it, he certainly would have made a lot of money there. Exactly. So he trades in his Apple One for an Apple II. He starts publishing games. He's one of the early, really prolific game publishers. He works with Soft Tape. He works with a New Jersey company called PowerSoft. He just has a huge output. None of them are particularly exceptional. We'll put them in the show notes. He did a Lunar Lander-type game called Rocket Pilot. The difference was, you know, most Lunar Landers is you're coming from the top of the screen and landing on the surface. Rocket Pilot, you both have to take off and land. So you start on one side of a mountain. There's a landing pad on the other side of the mountain. So first you take off, go over the mountain, and then you have to do your typical Lunar Lander thing to land on the other side of the mountain. He did a target shooting game called Saucer Invasion. That was in the third person. He did a first-person game. Was also target shooting called Star Wars. He did his own maze game called Space Maze. You know, Advanced Dragon Maze, you're being pursued by a dragon. This one, you're not being pursued by anything, but it's, you have to navigate your rocket ship through the maze, and if you touch the sides of the maze, you blow up and die. You know, again, these are pretty primitive games, but some of these early guys are exploring the capabilities of the system as far as they can take it which isn't very far, but they're figuring out, okay, I can do a shooting game with the paddle going up and down, okay, I can do a shooting game where it's first person and stuff's coming at me, I can do a maze game where I'm being chased, I can do a maze game where I can't touch the walls. They're kind of working within the constraints that they have and doing what they can, and then Soft Tape is publishing a lot of these primitive games at first, as we said, in these modules for $2 a piece. But then they do finally decide that their product is worth a little something more than that. And they start releasing them individually as well. Soft Tape doesn't last for long. It's overshadowed by other companies quickly. 
but they really are kind of the first company to really get involved in this computer game publishing business. The other big one, and this is the one that became the biggest of all of the early computer software companies, was a company called Programma International. Again, they were very short-lived, but from 1978 to about 1980 or so, these guys were the biggest guys on the market, and that all came down to the founder of the company, a real character named David Gordon. Gordon was something of a real character, as near as I can tell. He passed away many, many years ago, um, you know, before I was ever involved in interviewing things. He was a big guy, and he was an accountant. He worked for movie studios. He worked some for Warner Brothers. He worked for Paramount. He claims that he was kind of chased out of the profession a little bit because uh, he was Jewish. I'm not saying that actually happened, but I'm just saying that that's what he used to say. He liked flashy bling. He was obsessive about the things that he liked. And when he saw the Trinity, he fell in love. He saw the Apple II, he fell in love. He bought an Apple II, and he started collecting every single last software program he could find anywhere. He went to every computer store he could find. He went to every user group meeting he could attend. Anytime he met somebody and learned that they were interested in the Apple II, he'd corner them and quiz them on what programs they had and see if he'd be willing to trade with him some software. He was just obsessed with basically getting every last Apple II program he possibly could. Some of this was just trading with hobbyists. Some of it was pirating stuff that other people were selling. You know, it was both shady and not shady stuff, but he was just, he was bound and determined to get every last Apple II program of any time he could. So then in 1978, he met another guy named Mel Norell, who was selling software. He was the one that came up with the Programma name. At this time, the company was Programma Associates. Mel Norell had a company called Programma Associates that was selling software for a computer called the Sphere. The Sphere is a little more of an obscure computer from this period. Uh, it was created by a company down in Utah. But it was probably the first computer, and I say probably because, again, there's so many of these little fly-by-night companies it's hard to say who was truly first at some things, but at least it's the first one that we know of, the first one that was known that came integrated with a monitor and a, and a keyboard, as the SALT-20 later did, as, of course, the Trinity later did, etc. So that made it kind of noteworthy, but it faded away very quickly for the same reason so many of the others did. It was a small company. They couldn't manufacture enough to meet demand. They had supply chain problems. They had quality control problems, et cetera. So, you know, they fell apart pretty quickly. But they caught on and were a little popular for a brief period. So Mel Norell was selling software for it. Gordon was kind of already thinking, it's like, well, I've collected all this software. Certainly some other people would be interested in the software, too, and I can sell it to them. So he was kind of already gravitating towards the idea of maybe founding a company. And then when he met Mel, who already had a company selling software, he was like, hey, we got to get together. I know the Apple II market. The Sphere market, forget about that. The Apple II's huge. I know the market. I know the people. I know the circles that these people run in. Let's take your company, what you've already done, join it with my expertise. We'll call it Program International because it sounds more impressive than Program Associates. And we'll just sell, sell, sell Apple II software. So Programma was just a take everything they could find kind of company, which is actually what ended up destroying the company in the end because David Gordon, with his obsessive collection mentality, would accept any program regardless of quality and then try to turn it around and peddle it for a few bucks, which meant that the company very quickly 
even though it was the largest company because they had everything and were selling everything, it gave it a reputation for selling a lot of crappy product because they would take and sell everything. They didn't care if it was any good or not. So eventually that turned people against the company and its more sophisticated operations came into being in 80, 81, that time period. Programma just fell apart. But in these early days, they were huge. So, of course, they were in games as well. They did utilities, productivity software, languages, interpreters, everything under the sun, but they also did games. Some examples of games they did is they did a game called Laser Turret. We talked about Saucer War earlier, where your ships are going up and down because you're using those paddle controllers. Well, Laser Turret, instead of you controlling a block on the side of the screen going up and down, you control the block in the center of the screen and then ships are coming towards you from the outer edges of the screen, from the sides of the screen, and then you're having to rotate your gun battery, because remember, we're talking a paddle controller here. It's going up and down, or it's going left and right, not in the same time, not in the same game, but it's doing those moves, or you can do 360. In a Pong controller, or a paddle controller on the VCS, if you move it a certain amount of motion to the left, it eventually stops. You can't go all the way around. Same with the right. If you're moving to the right, it eventually stops because it's just meant to simulate that up and down or side to side movement. With the Apple, you can, as far as I know, because this game wouldn't make sense otherwise, as far as I know, you're not stopped from rotating. So you can do the 360 degree motion, but it means that you're this block stuck in the middle of the screen you're not moving and you're just rotating around to shoot things coming in around you now i imagine with the way that the apple II's poor resolution is the way the gun actually points is really really poor you only have what maybe eight directions you can shoot if you're really lucky 16 yeah i mean i don't know exactly how it works since i haven't played these games but we definitely will put it in the show notes because there is a guy, I think it's literally just one guy that on YouTube has gone and recorded footage from a lot of these really early, really primitive Apple games. So we can see him played and you'll see what we mean by the blocky graphics and the limited movement. But since I haven't actually gotten tactile with it, I'm not exactly sure how that works. But I think it is just four positions in this case. It's just you rotate it, boom, 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 up, down, left, right, BA start is pretty much all you have there. So yeah, we're talking really primitive, really primitive graphics, really primitive movement. And again, it's just because to do high res mode where you actually got a half decent screen resolution, not even a great resolution, but a half decent one, you had to have that 12K and very few people had 12K at this time. So that was Laser Turret. They did a game called Pirates, which was kind of an artillery duel style game, but it wasn't like a scorched earth or something. It wasn't quite like that. I mean, I'll just explain. So you have a gun battery on one side of the screen. There's a giant pirate ship on the other side of the screen. This giant pirate ship is made up of big blocky pixels, individual blocks. But in this case, it's a lot of blocks stitched together. It's a bigger, more impressive ship, but it's still very primitive and limited movement. This ship has a mast, again, made up of pixels. With your artillery gun, you have to whittle away at the mast, each one of these pixels. Uh, you know, if you hit the pixel, it disappears. You have to whittle away at the mast to destroy the masts of the pirate ship before the pirate ship, which is computer controlled and shooting back at you, completely destroys the mountain or the cliff face that you're on, which will cause your gun to fall and, and the game to end. 
So it's kind of an artillery duel. Despite what you said earlier, I would still argue that this is really very much like a primitive version of Scorch. Yeah, in in a way. And there had been some artillery duel games already on mainframes, which was no doubt the inspiration for this. But this one was a little different than some of those, and it wasn't player versus player. Again, that one manages to be a little more complicated and have bigger and bolder sprites, but that's because it's slower and, and less action-y and whatnot. There was a guy named Chris O'Berth who did some games for them. There was an early kind of luminary that actually went on then to work at Stern Electronics in the coin-op industry after that. He did some games for them as well. He did a game called Phaser Zap, which was kind of similar to that laser turret game. Except you don't have a block in the middle. He actually created a targeting reticule, and you're moving this targeting reticule around to uh, try to uh, shoot ships coming in from the side. And then he did one that was a little more innovative called 3D Docking Mission. Now, this is not actually in 3D, doing 3D graphics on a 4K or 8K Apple. I mean, no, that's, that's ridiculous. You, you can't do that. What he was able to do was he split the screen. He gave you a top view and a side view of a ship at the same time, side by side to each other. And then your ship's in this asteroid field. And so you have to navigate your ship through the asteroid field to get to the space station to dock. But you're watching the movement from two different planes of action at the same time. And if you touch an asteroid in either one of those planes of movement, your ship blows up and you're done. It's kind of a clever way to be kind of, quote-unquote, 3D without actually being 3D. With the controls for that, did you have to use two paddles in order to have that work, or a paddle and a keyboard? You know, that's a good question. And I, again, you know, I don't really know the answer because I've seen the footage, but I haven't actually gotten down and dirty with these games myself. They're probably out there somewhere. I could probably find them and actually play them. But I don't know if this was keyboard-controlled or... If you were doing paddle, two different paddles, like you said, or what? That's a good question, but I, I don't know the answer to that one. That's what I'm here for. Ask the entertaining questions. <laughs> Absolutely. Got to keep me honest. So that's kind of an overview of the kind of stuff Programmer was doing. Again, like the soft tape games, like Advanced Dragon Maze, or like Rocket Pilot. These are games that are very primitive they have some action to them, but they're big blocky graphics and limited controls, so they're not fast action, they're kind of slow action, and they're very clunky. It's kind of what you could do at the time, and, and these games were pretty quick and simple to make. They didn't take up much memory, they didn't take up much RAM, and, and so they fit in with what the computers of the time could do. But these companies that were making these games, I think in part probably because they got tied into this very primitive, very catch-what-you-can-get-what-you-can-from-hobbyist kind of mentality, they weren't really able to make the jump to what became the more professional computer game industry that really started developing in 1978, 1979. And of course, a lot of those companies went in different directions since action games didn't really work well on the computer. You know, a lot of the people that were really successful got into things like adventure games, like Scott Adams did Adventure International, or they got into dungeon crawls like Temple of Apshai at Automated Simulations. These are companies that we've talked about and, and done episodes on, not Adventure International yet. We have did Automated Simulations. That kind of overlaps in this period, too, 78, 79, but we won't talk about that in this context. 
we'll kind of wrap it up there because that's really, even though it overlaps this period, it's the beginning of a new phase. And it's something we've talked about before. This is the period where instead of this mentality of, oh, let's just see what hobbyists are doing and not worry too much about quality and just grab everything in sight. It's, I have an idea for a game. I have an idea for a more in-depth, a more interesting game, because by this time, disk drives are coming in, computers with more memory are coming in, and you can do a little more with it. I'm going to create games, and instead of just throwing them out there into the world to these catch-all companies, I'm going to find someone I know who has some business expertise, and we're going to form a company around my idea. And this is when it becomes more personal. It's something that the software creators are more invested in, and you get something that ends up being a little more permanent. And look, some of these guys got started with that other stuff. Scott Adams, like I said, got started by working with the magazine companies we talked about, with SoftSide and with Creative Computing. But then he started his own business, Adventure International, and he started doing his own marketing. Broderbund, Doug Carlston, his first games, he made them available to everybody. So they were being sold by... Adventure International, for instance, which he sent them to, they, they were being sold by some of these guys on the West Coast. But then he decided, if I'm really going to do this, I'm really going to do this, I'll found a company with my brother, and we'll make this happen ourselves. Sierra Online. The Williamses were initially, with their games, going to go through Programma International. But they couldn't come up to terms with Programma in a way that they liked, because they thought with Mystery House, their first game, they had something special, and they thought it was worth more than... David, grab everything in sight for cheap and sell it for cheap. Gordon of Programma was willing to give them for it. So they said, forget about these catch-all companies. We'll sell it ourselves through online systems. The next generation got their start in this infrastructure for the most part. Automated simulations is an exception. But they quickly left this infrastructure and took more personal ownership of their property and became more business savvy about their property. And that's how we get to the next phase the Broderboons, the Infocoms, which, of course, marketed their first game through personal software, which we talked about. The uh, online systems. Companies we've talked about before. Exactly. So this kind of bridges that gap and shows you what was going on before that. And then as these companies with better product and more sophisticated product took over the market, your catch-all companies like your soft tapes and your programmas just kind of faded away. That's kind of this phase of the industry, and that's kind of how the whole early thing came together. So now that we have looked at the early primordial software and those computers, and how that sort of transition between the time-shared episode and the Trinity and the Disciples, we need to now march forth and bring forth the computer price wars for great victory for Jack Trammell and others. <laughs> Well, someday we'll do the computer prize wars, but but no, no, not yet, not yet. Why don't we uh, then look at one of those companies in the second wave? We've already looked at some of them. We've done Sierra, we've done Bruderbund, we've done Epics slash Automated Simulations. One we haven't done, though, is Surtech Software which is really one of the most influential companies in the creation of the computer RPG as we know it through wizardry. We've talked about this before, but there were basically two types of computer RPGs in the very early days. 
there were tile-based Ultima clones, and there were first-person wireframe wizardry clones. And then, when you smoosh them together and simplify them, you get JRPGs like Dragon Quest. So, Surtec is a very important company just for wizardry. It's interesting because it's a company that started out so strong and so bright and pioneered something so crucial, and then kind of just drifted along and then just kind of faded away. So it has a kind of different story from a lot of these companies like Sierra or Broderbund. You know, Sierra tried to get too big and blew up. Broderbund tried to get big but couldn't get big enough and blew up. Uh, Surtec just kind of coasted and they just kind of faded away. It's a very different and unusual kind of story. So between wizardry and, and kind of the later fate of the company, it's, it's kind of an interesting topic that we actually haven't covered before. Sounds like it should make an interesting episode. Yep, and I've got some good info there. Uh, there's been some good stuff written about wizardry. Uh, I've personally interviewed Robert Siratek, who was one of the co-founders of the company. Well, he actually joined, technically joined slightly after founding, but was one of the co-runners of the company. So there's some good info to mine there, and I, I think we can get a good episode out of that. And we will see you next time with The Wizards of Surtech on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCWpodcast please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 